Three weeks ago, we started a series entitled, We Are Called. We are called. We are called to be a church that fulfills its ministry of reconciliation and renewal through worship, through discipleship, through cultural renewal, and community outreach. And we have been talking about specifically what does it mean to do these things here at Coral Ridge in South Florida in the year 2017. We are a church that has been called. And so this morning, we want to discuss and talk about, as we look at the Scripture, we're going to be looking at, in particular, Matthew chapter 5, verses 11 through 16. Matthew chapter 5, 11 through 16. Now, it's a daunting task to ever try to talk about the issue of culture and cultural renewal in the course of a Sunday morning sermon. The topic is so broad. The topic is so important. The topic is critical for us to understand. And so this morning, we will simply attempt to begin this process of understanding what it means for us as a church. But it's a journey that does not end today, but we will continue to look at, to pray through, to study as a church. What does it mean to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world? You might wonder, if you hear the word culture, it seems like a broad term. It seems like one of those nebulous, ambiguous terms that we might not be able to quite wrap our mind around. It's a term that is thrown around here and there when we hear the word culture or the idea of cultural renewal. Ken Myers defines culture simply as what we make of the world or for the Christian of creation. Culture is what we make of the world or of creation. To expand that a little, it's the shared beliefs, the values, and the institutions of a society. So if you want to understand what is a cultural experience for any given society, you just have to look at their shared values and beliefs, look at their institutions, and that will tell you everything you need to know about that society's culture. I don't think I'm enlightening anyone today when I say that our world and our culture today is broken. You just have to turn on the news for about a minute and see that we are living in a world and living in a cultural moment today that is broken and it is in need of deep healing And it's in the midst of this broken world, it's in the midst of the brokenness of culture that Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 5 addresses our calling. Jesus in Matthew chapter 5 has sat down and began what is known as the Sermon on the Mount. And his followers have come to sit at his feet to understand in the culture that we live in, in this world that you've placed us, God, how are we supposed to respond? What is the calling that you've placed on our life? So it is in the context of the Sermon on the Mount that God calls these disciples together to understand who they are and what they are called to be in the world and in their culture. So would you read with me Matthew chapter 5. Verses 11 through 16. Hear the word of God. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you 
and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord, no, the word of our Lord, it stands forever. Amen. Should Christians be engaged in culture? It's the question that the church has been debating for centuries. What should the church's response be to the cultural moments that they are faced with? Well, this was the same question that the church was faced with in 1934 Germany. In 1934 Germany, Hitler was on the rise. And one of the most cunning things that Hitler wanted to do was he wanted to separate the church and its clergy from the public square and from the public discussion and of the cultural moment of the day. And so in order for Hitler to separate the church from the state, he gathered all of the influential clergy together in the chancery. And he tried to convince them that everything will remain the same. Your tax exemption, your status will all remain the same. The church will be okay. And one young, confident preacher pushed his way forward and said, we are not worried about the church. Jesus will take care of the church. What we are concerned about is the soul of our nation. And Hitler responded back to that young preacher and said, you just worry about the church. As for the soul of the nation, you can leave that to me. And the church in 1934 Germany did just that. And it led to the destruction of millions and millions and millions of people. You see, often when we think about how the church responds to culture, how does the church engage with culture and in this ministry of cultural renewal, we often see two responses. We often see Christians calling for retreat, that the, that, that the culture can never truly be renewed and shaped and impacted. Therefore, we need to retreat. And we need to stay in our churches. And as long as we're preaching the gospel and doing the work of the church within our safe environments, God will take care of the rest. And we see Christian after Christian after Christian when faced with the ministry of cultural renewal retreating. But then on the opposite extreme, we have the, what I call the ministry of assimilation where the Christians look at the world and they look at the culture and they go, they're indifferent to it. 
And they're apathetic to it. And the Christians find themselves assimilating into the culture where you can't really see the difference between those that have been set apart by God and those that have not. That we see Christians going into the world, assimilating to the point where, as it says here in this passage, the salt just seems to lose its saltiness. But for Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church in 2017, there is a third response that is needed. See, the third response that is needed is not a response of, on the one hand, retreating from this ministry of cultural renewal, but on the other hand, we cannot afford to any longer assimilate into the culture, but a third response that is needed for Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church in 2017 is the Christian who is an agent of renewal. An agent of renewal, the Christian that goes deep into the cultural moment, deep into culture to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. We must be agents of cultural renewal. Cultural renewal is simply taking the message of the gospel, the gospel that is preached from this pulpit, the gospel that you hear every Sunday morning. It's taking the message of the gospel out of the church and into the world and living out its implications in every area of life. That there would not be one area of our lives that would not be impacted or affected for the saving message of the gospel that we hear on Sunday morning. So if God is truly working through his people, if God is truly calling his people to shape and renew culture, then I want to answer a few key questions this morning by looking at Matthew chapter 5. The first question I want, to, want us to answer is, how does the church engage in cultural renewal? How does the church engage in bringing out about the renewal of all things in our culture today? Well, Jesus says it in verses 13 and 14. He says simply, be salt and light. Be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. But what exactly does that mean? When we think about salt today, we think of it as something that adds flavor, something that adds flavor to our food. And that's on the one hand what Jesus is trying to get at, but it goes much deeper than that. You see, 2,000 years ago, in the context of the people and the time that Jesus was talking to, they didn't have the means of preserving food as they do, as we do today. They didn't have refrigeration and freezers. And in order to prevent the decaying of food, what would they do? They would rub salt over the food, and it would prevent the food from decaying more. You see, salt 2,000 years ago was a means of preservation. It was a means of preserving the food. And what the salt would do is it would break down the organisms that brought decay and death. And so what Jesus is saying here in the call to be the salt of the earth, he's, he wants us as a church, as people that follow Jesus, to be agents of life in the midst of the decay, in the midst of death, in the midst of a culture of death, he is calling us to bring about a culture of life, to go into those places that are dying and decaying, 
and bring salt into those places, into our relationships. Be the salt in the workplace, in our families, in our communities, in our society. Then we see those that are the vulnerables of our society, the widow and the orphan and the unborn. We say as a church, no, not on our watch. We will be agents of life. We will be agents of renewal. We will be the salt of the earth, bringing deeds of justice and mercy to those that have been marginalized in our society. But not only does Jesus call us to be the salt of the earth, he also calls us to be the light of the world. And what does light do? Light all throughout the Bible is synonymous with truth that we are the people of truth, that we go into our culture, we go into the workplace and in our communities, we go into our civic associations, we go out into the world, and we are agents and beacons of truth in a world full of falsehoods. And what does the light do? The light exposes the darkness. And so what Jesus is trying to say here is by being salt, you are bringing life. And by bring it, being light, you are bringing the truth. Be agents of life and be agents of truth for your culture and in this cultural moment. But what's one thing that we have to understand about being salt and light. At the end of verse 13, the second half of verse 13, what does it say? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. That if the salt loses its taste, if the salt loses its saltiness, what does it say at the end of verse 15? Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all that are in the house. In order for light and salt to be effective, what does it have to do? The salt has to touch that thing that is dying and decaying. The light has to go into the darkness. What that means is for Christians to engage in culture, they cannot retreat from the culture that God has called them to. But instead, God calls us to go in, to go into the dark places, to go into those places, to the culture of death, to go into those places that are dying and decaying, to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. That the salt can only be effective if it's touching the thing that is dying. The light can only be effective, not in the midst of other light, but the light must go out into the dark places of our world and into our culture in order for it to be effective. It's been well documented, the spread of Christianity over the last 2,000 years and how the message of Christianity and the movement of Christianity has shaped culture and civilizations and societies. There's many books documenting things like it was the message of Christianity in the first century that brought freedom and dignity to the woman, to the woman that was at one point ostracized and had no freedom and had no dignity. It was the movement of Christianity that brought about the freedom and dignity of a woman. It has been well documented that it has been the movement of Christianity that helped establish the first schools and universities. It has been well documented that it is Christianity that has been responsible for the founding of orphanages and hospitals. It's been well documented that it is the Christians that have been the first to champion the abolition of slavery. 
But in one book in particular, Rodney Stark, who writes a book called The Rise of Christianity, and where he focuses primarily on the first 300 years, and the thing that he wants to address is how could this small group of ragamuffin Galileans in the first century, in just 300 years, become a movement that rivaled the power and the influence of the Roman Empire. And Rodney Stark in the book, The Rise of Christianity, talks about one incident in particular. He talks about the spread of plagues all throughout the European continent over the first 300 years. And these plagues, when they spread through all of the European villages, Rodney Stark talks about the testimony of the pagans fleeing the cities, literally throwing out their family members and friends on the street, allowing them to be left for dead. But he talks about there's this one group, while all those that are fleeing the cities, escaping the plague, there is one group, It is the church, it is the Christians that are moving into the cities and moving into the homes and taking care of the sick, even if it costs them their life. Julian, the emperor at the time, said, I cannot believe those Galileans because they are responsible for thousands and thousands of people fleeing from the pagan religion and adopting and embracing the Christian religion because those Galileans, they not only take care of their poor and their sick, but they take care of our poor and our sick as well. He says these Christians are responsible for a movement unlike this world has ever seen. But it was the Christians that went in while all those were fleeing, be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Not only do we engage our culture by being sought in light, but moving on in in verse 14, it says that you are not only the light of the world, but a city. It's interesting. You can imagine the reaction of these ragamuffin disciples listening to Jesus give them their marching orders and give them this calling for renewal. And he says, you are like a city. And why does he use the metaphor of a city? Is it because he wants them to understand that you, if you are going to follow after me, that you are not a retreat center or a country club, but you are a city set on a hill. And what does a city have? A city has business and art and learning and laws and politics and music and commerce and real estate. And he says, I want you to engage every area of society and every area of culture. I want you to be the city in the midst of the city. This is what Augustine talked about in his book, The City of God. As the Roman Empire was collapsing, he wanted to remind the Christian that you are part of the city of God, that you are building the city of God amidst the city of man. And this is what they said about the book, The City of God. That Augustine wanted us to be reminded, the believers, that we are living in the world and that there are two cities, there are two kingdoms. One is a human society based on selfishness and gaining power. God's kingdom is the opposite. It is the human society based on giving up power in order to serve. 
Christians live in both kingdoms, and although that is the reason for much conflict and tension, it is also the hope and assurance of the world. The kingdom of God is the permanent reality, while the kingdom of this world will eventually fade away. It means that the Christian cannot just be content with how they engage the world on Sunday morning by simply coming to church and singing and hearing the gospel preached, but they must take that gospel into the world and into culture to build what? The city of God in the midst of the city of man. Be the city. Be the city. Be the kingdom of God. Be the city of God. So how do we engage culture? By being the salt of the earth and the light of the world, by being the city of God in the midst of the city of the man. Point two, what can we expect? Jesus says we can expect two things from shaping and renewing culture. At the end of this passage that I read in verse 16, he says, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they might see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. He's saying by going out and renewing culture, by going out and being the salt of the earth and the light of the world, many people will be attracted. Many people will be attracted to this message. Many people will be attracted by your works of justice and mercy. And Jesus says many people will glorify your Father in heaven because of your good deeds. Jesus says you will have an attractional ministry. But also, in verse 11, he said, although you might have moments where people are attracted to your message and your ministry, what does it say in verse 11? Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Although there will be times where people are attracted to your message and to your ministry, he says, not if, I hate to burst your bubble, but when. You will not only have an attractional ministry, but you will have a ministry of opposition. Ask Frank Wright if he knows anything about having a ministry that is opposed on account of Jesus Christ. And may I take a point of personal privilege to let Frank Wright know that we are praying for him and his ministry in this watershed moment for our culture. But there will be times where you will be accepted, but there will be times of persecution. Not if, but when. You will be hurt, and you will be persecuted, and you will be insulted. But what is the key? What is the key? What does Jesus say in those moments where people are attracted to your ministry and message and those moments where people are against your message and your ministry? What is the key? Understand they are not opposing you, but they are opposing Jesus Christ. They are opposing the message and the ministry of Jesus. They oppose you on my account. They favor you on your account. So that we can never, on the one hand, get so discouraged when we are opposed because we remember that they are opposing Jesus himself. And we can never be so proud when people are attracted to our ministry and message because we know that it is ultimately the glory of the Father that is at stake. We will have a ministry of attraction and we will have a ministry of opposition. That is what we can expect, but all on the account and work of Jesus Christ.
Lastly, what confidence do we have this morning? There's many out there, there's many friends and family, or maybe even you yourself this morning that go, what's the use? The world and our culture is going to hell in a handbasket. It doesn't seem like it's ever getting better. It doesn't seem like there's any use, Rob. It all sounds good, but nothing's ever going to change. Things will only get worse. Not so fast. What is the context of this passage? Before Jesus calls them to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world, Jesus, in the first few verses of Matthew chapter 5, give the disciples what are known as the Beatitudes. And it's these series of statements where Jesus wants his disciples to understand that you are blessed. What does the word blessed mean? It doesn't mean to be happy. Actually, the definition of being blessed is to have favor or even success. And so we, we can read the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5 as favored are the poor in spirit, and favored are those who mourn, and favored are the meek. You see, the reason that we can have confidence to enter boldly with courage and with all humility into this ministry of cultural renewal is that Jesus is saying, you are already favored. Because Jesus is the one that is making all things new. You see, it is the Christian that can say, regardless of how bad it seems, regardless of how bad it seems to get, I know that... My life is favored by God because of Jesus Christ. It's only the person that is poor in spirit that can also say, the kingdom of God is eventually mine. Favored are those who mourn because one day I will be comforted. Blessed are the, the meek for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be satisfied. You see, this gives us the confidence as a Christian because we know what the end will look like. And our whole lives are revolving around this mission to bring the end to the present and say, you can persecute me. I can be poor in spirit. I can be meek. I can mourn. But I know what eventually will happen because of Jesus Christ. Only the Christian can say, one day I will have the kingdom of heaven. One day I will be comforted. One day I will inherit the earth. One day I will be satisfied. One day I shall see God. We live with that confidence because we know the final chapter. It means that if you are a Christian this morning, you just don't sit there and do nothing because one day you know that God is making all things new. You don't sit there and do nothing because... You are called to live with a holy discontent to say this is not the final chapter. No matter how bad it gets, no matter how bad the cultural moment seems, we know as Christians that the best is yet to come. We live with a holy discontent with the evil and the brokenness, brokenness of our world. In the early 1990s, the world saw what is known as the siege on Sarajevo. It was the largest siege on a capital city that this world has ever seen. 
In the early 1990s, the world watched as the capital city, Sarajevo, was sieged by bombs and by snipers. And in one village in particular, there was 22 pedestrians standing outside waiting to buy their bread in the morning at the local bakery when a bomb hit them and destroyed the bakery and killed 22 people. And as people were fleeing and hiding, in the story known as the cellist of Sarajevo, a young man took his cello and he put on his black tuxedo and he went into that crater and began to play. He began to play for 22 hours while people were fleeing. He said, not on my watch. And he filled the streets and the city of Sarajevo in the midst of death and of darkness and of despair with beautiful music. And he didn't stop there. After 22 hours passed, he went to the graveyards and he went through the city producing beautiful music because he said, not on my watch, death and darkness will not have the final say, but beauty. And he will make all things new. And that is what we are called to do as well. In the midst of death and darkness and despair, we are called to go into the darkness. Why do we have a Christian school, Westminster Academy? Because we believe that no child will grow up without hearing and learning about Jesus Christ and how it relates to every part of life. And they will grow up here learning about Jesus why do we fight against the abuse of the poor and of women and abortion and abandonment of wid widows and human trafficking? Because we at Coral Ridge say, not on our watch, not on our watch. So how do we respond in closing? How do we respond? Because you might be here this morning and say, Rob, I can't even change myself, let alone the world and culture. And I ask you this morning, do you know the one who makes all things new? You see, in the Beatitudes, when Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, and blessed are those that mourn, for they shall be comforted, the only way that that is possible is that there had to be one that came 2,000 years ago who said, I will become poor for you so that you could have the kingdom of heaven. I will mourn for you so that one day you will be comforted. I will come lowly, meek, and humble so that one day you will inherit the earth. I will even thirst on the cross so that one day you will be satisfied. Do you know the one that makes all things new? Jesus Christ, through his life and death and resurrection, can make you new this morning. There might be some here this morning that are asking themselves, Rob, I've heard the grandiose stories. I've heard the stories of the, the William Wilberforces and the Dietrich Bonhoeffers of this world. But I just, I have an ordinary life and an ordinary job. I don't really have anything remar any remarkable skill that I can offer our culture. And I say, not so fast. 
You see, you are called regardless of where you are at in life, regardless of what you do, regardless of your stage of life. You are called wherever God has uniquely placed you to bring about renewal in your culture. So therefore, if you are an electrician or an accountant or a realtor or retiree or teacher or politician or entertainer or you just simply pave the roads or cut grass or you're a banker or a nurse, God has uniquely placed you wherever God might find you to bring beauty into brokenness, to bring life into death, and bring light out of darkness because you know the future. Courage, be steadfast. Be encouraged. You do not labor in vain. To the mom that is sitting out there this morning and says, Rob, I am neck deep in diapers and dishes. You do not labor in vain. Wherever God has uniquely placed you in your life, bring beauty out of brokenness and light in the midst of darkness and life in the midst of death. Be encouraged. You do not labor in vain. Let me close with this. If you've ever had the privilege to watch the Army-Navy game every Thanksgiving weekend, it is certainly quite a spectacle. But even more spectacular and remarkable than the game is what happens before the game. See, the Army-Navy game has this incredible tradition which is known as the March On. And it's the march on that takes place before every Army-Navy game where thousands upon thousands upon thousands of Navy midshipmen and Army cadets march onto the field. Thousands upon thousands of cadets and midshipmen and there is not one patch of grass that can be seen by the eye. And as the band plays, thousands upon thousands of cadets and midshipmen march in unison. It's called the March On. And it's a moving, stirring symbol of solidarity and unity and mission. And back in 2014, CBS was interviewing one of the midshipmen, and they said, what makes this tradition so special? And the midshipman says... It's in that moment, in that symbolic gesture, that we are reminded that we no longer serve our own self-interest, but that we serve a greater purpose. And it's in that moment that we remember that we march on regardless of what we've been called to, regardless of the circumstances. We march on regardless of what faces ahead of us, and what dangers lie ahead because it's in that moment we remember that we have a greater calling. Coral Ridge, we are a people that have been called to bring about renewal in our world and in our culture in such a way that it mirrors the city of God. May we be agents of renewal so that in 30, 40, 50 years from now, our children and our grandchildren walk along our streets and they say, surely God was in this place. March on, Coral Ridge. March on.